We turn together to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 43. In Genesis chapter 43, we continue in our journey in the story of the patriarchs, specifically the story of Joseph as he has become the center of our attention. You'll recall that Jacob or that Joseph was sold into slavery and that he was imprisoned and falsely accused. And then in God's providence, he came before Pharaoh himself and is now elevated to second in command of all of Egypt. And then the famine that he told Pharaoh would come had indeed come. And that caused his brothers to visit Egypt for food. And now as we pick up here at the beginning of chapter 43, we see that one trip for supply of food is insufficient. The Lord our God is not going to let the sons of Jacob go so easily. If you would please give attention now then to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live. And not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, Then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, 
I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready. For the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had, let, they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother, of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would use your word powerfully in our lives. That you would teach us, but more, Lord, that you would change us. That we would be changed by the power of your word, wielded by your Holy Spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is an old saying. It goes along with the idea of you reap what you sow. 
And it goes something like this. If you sow an act or an action, you will reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you will reap a character. If you sow a character, you will reap a destiny. And I think that is very true. Because you see, as much as we would like to see change in ourselves and in others as some kind of rapid movement, here today, gone tomorrow, that's not how the Lord works in the lives of His children. You see, change is something that takes us by surprise. It is something that is slow at times, deliberate. It is something that we wish we were in control of. But you see, I think the very fact that change happens slowly and outside of our control is a powerful testimony to the sovereignty of God in the salvation of His people. Not just at the beginning in justification by faith, but all throughout our Christian life as we are molded into the image of Jesus. And so today we see Joseph's brothers come back to Egypt. And we see a change that was begun in chapter 42 continuing. But it is not quite there yet. There are still a few chapters yet for us to read about them. But we do see the beginnings of change. It's the kind of change that doesn't just occur in Bible people that we read about, but it's the kind of change that must occur in you and in me if we are to follow the Lord. And there are these three things. First, there is a change in thinking. Change in the way we think. Second, there is a change in actions. That change manifests itself in the things that we do. And then third, there is a change in attitude. The way we observe ourselves, others, and the Lord. A change in thinking, a change in actions, and a change in attitude. Let's begin then by thinking about just who it is we're talking about. This is Joseph's brothers. They are beginning to be molded by the Lord. And they're beginning now, as we see in chapter 43, to take responsibility. But let's not forget who they were. You remember all of the incidents that we have seen in past chapters. Their sister is assaulted. They are not protecting her. They're not advising her. And what do they do? Well, immediately they place all of the blame on the people of the land. And they act out their anger toward them. They're lazy and shiftless in their work. And Joseph comes alongside them to explain to them that their father is concerned and that they need to be honest and honorable before God. And what do they do? They don't change at all. They blame Joseph. They say, we could just get rid of Joseph like we got rid of the Shechemites. Then everything will be good. But you see, they do. And their relationship with their father is strained. And rather than again change, they begin then to blame Jacob. 
He's too hard on us. He doesn't understand what young people need nowadays. And then we even have an incident with with Judah where he commits sin with his daughter-in-law and he is so ready to place all of the blame on Tamar that he is ready to execute her immediately. This is who these people are. They are masters of the blame game. But God is awakening their conscience in them. And you can see it even in little ways. You know what that's like, don't you? Moms and dads, as you see change beginning in your children, as you see them starting to take more responsibility, starting to do things on initiative, starting to do things without being asked or nagged or reminded, it may be very, very small at first, unimportant things, but you see it and you are hopeful. And that's what we see here. You see, last chapter, Jacob had to come to his sons and say, Hey, guys, get off the couch. You might want to think about doing something and buying us some food. We're going to starve here. Why are you sitting around so silent here? But now, we have a famine continuing, and their father comes up to them in a very gentle way. He doesn't have to goad them. It's just a gentle reminder. Go again. Buy us a little food. And there's no pushback, at least in the concept. There is in the execution, but not in the concept. We see here now that Jacob's sons are starting to take responsibility. There is a new eagerness to go again to Egypt. But we must also remember that taking responsibility does not mean that we are in control. Because Jacob's sons are certainly not in control. There is a famine that is out of their control. It doesn't slow down at all. If anything, perhaps it gets worse. Now, we know from previous portions of Genesis that this will go on for yet five more years after this year. But to the family of Jacob, they must seem completely helpless. Without any hope, you can't make a famine unfamine. We forget about this nowadays because even when large areas of, of where we live go without rain, we can still drive to the grocery store and get meat and food and bread. That's not the way it was for most of history and not the way it is for most of the world today. When there's a famine, you're at a loss. This is kind of like how we feel in the midst of storms. Or maybe even better yet, if you've ever been involved or had a loved one involved in a serious car accident. You want to do something. You don't know what to do. You can't unwreck the car. You can't instantly heal them. You you want to help all you can, but you are helpless. This is, I think, a bit how the sons of Jacob would feel. They're also completely under the control of the will of the man. Do you notice that Moses describes Joseph that way over and over again? I think there is a mechanism to this. It's not just avoiding Joseph's name. They are saying to their father the same way that we might in modern slang say, the man is after us. 
Because Joseph is the man, isn't he? The only one that can tell Joseph what to do is Pharaoh. The only one in the world. And Pharaoh is completely happy to let Joseph be in charge. And perhaps the first week or two or month after they'd returned from Egypt, they might have thought that Joseph would change, that this problem would be workable. We'll talk to Dad. He'll figure it out. We'll hear back from Joseph. It won't be that big of a deal. This Egyptian ruler, he'll cool off. Isn't that often how we approach life? When we have a problem, we immediately understand what the solution is. It's obvious. You need to change. As soon as you change, everything will work itself out. And and I have great confidence that you will see that you need to change, and you'll change quickly. But as time goes on, we realize a truth from Scripture. You can't change someone else. You really are not the boss of them. You cannot make people do things differently. We see this all the time in the way we speak to our, friend, our children about the friends they select, or especially the spouse they select. We wonder, why won't people just change? And there are two answers to that. The first is, people can. But it's not other people. It's us people. You see, what has to happen here is the sons of Jacob, they need to begin to change. We need to change if we want to see real progress. Real progress is not hoping and whining and complaining that other people will be different. There's a third thing that's completely out of their control, and that is the circumstances. Two years have gone by and nothing seems to have changed. It is what it is. And yet the sons of Jacob are ready to begin to take responsibility. They begin now finally to start thinking about other people rather than themselves. They say to their father, now we must act, father. We have to do this. Last year you told us, no, no, no. You denied when Reuben came to you and he said, we need to do this. You said, no, 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 I won't have anything of it. But we got to do something, dad. It's been two years. Simeon is in prison. We need food. Your grandkids are going to die. And Judah then begins to show what real change looks like. He takes the lead. Now, remember who Judah is. Don't have in your mind Bible phrases like the Lion of Judah or the Kingdom of Judah. I want you to have in your mind a self-centered self-gratifying, whiny, immature brat who blames others and who doesn't like his brothers and who's ready to kill his brother or better yet, make some money off him rather than change. But now Judah comes forward. He takes the lead away from Reuben and he stands up to his father and he's very assertive. Look with me here at verse 8. The language here is very descriptive. He says, send the boy with me and we will go. And the way he phrases it, it's a series of and phrases over and over again for emphasis for his father. 
The Hebrew says, send the boy with me and we will arise and we will go and we will live and we will not die. Even you, even me, even the children. Come on, Dad. Who would have thought this? We go back about 10 or 15 years. Who would have thought that Judah would be a more responsible adult than Jacob? But he is. God is at work. This is what God does. This is a change in the thinking of the children of Jacob. But the change doesn't just stay in their mind in the way they think of others. There's also a change in actions. And actually, it begins with Jacob. You'll notice here that in this chapter, Jacob isn't even called Jacob. He's over and over again called Israel. You see, now he is beginning finally to seize that name and to act upon it. He is acting in faith. Look with me at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. And then at the very end of chapter 14, uh, excuse me, verse 14, And as, as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now we can look at this and say, well, Israel is just given up on life. It's a fait accompli. But I don't think that's what's going on here in his speech. You see, he's had a lot of hard things happen to him in his life. He's lost Joseph. He's lost Simeon. He's unhappy with his family. He is the kind of guy that is used to working the problem and finding a solution. And he can't do anything about it now. And so what he does is he resigns himself to the solution. He resigns himself to where he ought to have started, to trusting the Lord. He says, if it must be so, this is what we'll do. Now, you have to remember here the risk to Israel. This is not just about Benjamin. This is not just about brothers. This is not just about food. The promise of the salvation of the world hangs on this trip. And Israel knows it. He's figured it out. That it's in God's hands and it's better off in God's hands. That God understands it and that God will bring it to completion more wisely than we could ever hope. This is difficult for us to turn around in our own lives, isn't it? We think we've got things figured out. And if God would only listen to us, we've got a plan, God. Isn't there a place I can mail you a letter? Don't you listen to my prayers? I know what I'm doing here, God. I'm in the middle of this. And somehow we think if we turn our situation, our providence over to God, somehow that is like giving up. It's not. It's not giving up. It's giving up control. Control we never really had. And you see, this is what Israel does. And we understand that he is not giving up. He's not going to sit in his bed and cry and whine and mope because he does something that every good Calvinist should do. Every believer in the Word of God that says God is sovereign, He's completely in control, He knows all.
things. He's numbered the hairs on my head. What Israel does is after he gives it over to God, he immediately springs into action. Do you see that? You see the caricature of the belief and understanding of the scripture that God is in control says, well, if God's in control, why do you bother to pray? If God's in control, why do you bother to share the gospel? If God's in control, why do you bother to do anything? And what the scripture teaches us is because God is in control, we can act quickly and decisively knowing that he is sovereign. Do you see this? He's not frozen. He's not a frozen chosen here. He immediately says, I've got a plan, guys. We put this over to God, but here's what we need to do. We need to act with wisdom. Go and get a present for the man. This is what you would do. And he lists off a few things to bring. Some delicacies of the area. And even there, God is in control in the midst of this. I want you to see this. He says... You need to take a little balm, a little honey, gum that's actually like sticky spices, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Sounds like a grocery list, right? What's important about that? Pistachio nuts. Well, I like pistachio nuts. I'm glad the Bible has them. No. Two of those words, gum and myrrh, occur only two places in the Old Testament. Here, and what the caravan of Midianites were carrying when they picked up Joseph. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. I think God is here in the middle of this. Even in the grocery list, God is making His sovereignty known. And Israel goes on, he says, and you, you guys better take double the money. It could have been an oversight. It could have been a problem. I don't know, but let's not be caught red-handed. Go and explain yourselves and be ready to give double the money. And the third thing he says is, and take Benjamin, which must have just ripped his heart out. But we see why he can do this, because he prays this prayer for Benjamin and for them in verse 14, he says, may God Almighty, that's the exact name that God revealed himself first to Abraham when he gave the promise. God Almighty, may he grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. You see here, Jacob is acting by faith. He has become Israel inside and out. And he says, I trust the Lord, He will give you mercy. And His sons follow His lead. Because you see, they understand and see His faith, and then they begin to go and to be ready to make things right. Our narrative begins to pick up the pace. In verse 15, the whole travel back to Egypt is handled in a few words, and they show up and they see the man again. And you can imagine they're nervous. And the man looks down from on high and he says to his servants a series of verbs that I want you to understand what it would sound like if you were already on edge. And he says, bring them, slaughter, prepare. Um, This is one of these things where 
What are we having for dinner? You. What do you mean by that? Right? So they're even more nervous. You know, they're afraid. He's out, he's out to get us, and they have a reason to be afraid. But you see, it leaps to a level of paranoia. You know what that's like, don't you? Where you get so nervous and you can't hold it in? Because look at what they say. I know what he's after. He's gonna take us and he's gonna kill us. He wants our donkeys. Really? The second in command of Egypt. The richest land on the face of the earth. He's after your smelly donkeys. Seriously? But you see, that's how nervous they are. That's how God has pricked their conscience and they can't hold themselves out. And they do something that I think usually only happens when I watch crime dramas on TV. I have advice for my wife and my kids and I'll give it to you as free lawyer's advice in the midst of a sermon. Whenever a policeman comes to you and asks you to share your story, don't say anything. When you, all you can do is convict yourself. They're not out to help you, right? When they say, we just want to hear your side of the story. And inevitably, you watch these crime dramas, that's what they do. They blurt out everything. Oh, I'm so glad I got that off my chest. My, my great uncle was an expert at this. There's actually a Supreme Court rule fashioned about him because he would get people to confess by praying with them in the, in the interrogation room. And he would say, you know, you're... Your poor sainted mother, she would just, she would love it if you would give up. Let's pray together about this. And they'd confess. And you'd get a conviction. And you see, this is what Joseph's brothers do here. They haven't even been accused of a crime. And they walk up to the steward and they say, I know you're thinking we stole all this. But really, we didn't. And then, can you imagine how the change in them continues to grow when the steward looks at them and he says, no, I had your money. You don't owe me anything. You're God. He's the one who's blessed you. Imagine the light bulb going off in their head. Wait a minute. God really is in control. And it's for our good. All along we've been thinking if we let go and gave God control, all of our lives would be horrible and we'd be punished and there'd be misery. But God has a plan for us and is working it out in our lives. You see, this change begins in the mind, it goes in actions, and then it roots itself finally in their attitude. They begin then to act differently toward others. And we see it in this scene that's set out. It seems so odd. They have this great banquet, and you wonder to yourself, does the second-in-command of Egypt throw a banquet for every dusty traveler? No. And there's this odd setup. Joseph is by himself and the Egyptians are by themselves and the Israelites are by themselves because you see, not only would they normally not throw a banquet, they won't even eat with them. You know, we don't like Hebrews. They got hair everywhere. And they stink. And they're not as smart as we are. So, you know, okay, if we got to be in the same room, put them over there downwind. See, there's a reminder in this that there is a great difference between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. And in the midst of this great difference, in the midst of this challenge, not knowing what will come to them, gifts become lavished upon them. Joseph serves them from his table. 
He is literally killing them with kindness. And he asks them all of these questions. How is your father? How is your brother? How are you doing? And you see, they wonder, how can, how can we stand here? What, what is going on? And there's one last test, I think, that Joseph pulls out against them. To see if they have really changed, if their attitude is different. And it happens here at the end of this chapter. Do you see it? They get plenty of good food. But what does Benjamin get? Five times the portion. Do you see what Joseph's doing here? They hated him because he got things from his father that they didn't. They hated him and wanted to kill him because he was singled out. And he wants to know, have you changed here? He's waiting for somebody to stand up and say to Benjamin, give me some of that. You don't need all five portions. Who do you think you are? You see, he wants to see if there's been real change. And of course, the last verse tells us that God is indeed a miracle worker. That He's taken this ragtag group of brothers and made them in to men. They drank and were merry with Him. They didn't begrudge Benjamin anything. They were just happy for what they had gotten. They were happy with what God was doing. They were happy with how their lot in life was. You see, we often wonder about others, if they can change. I think if we're honest, we even wonder about ourselves, if we can change. And that's not surprising, because change is hard, isn't it? Change is slow. But what this chapter teaches us is that change does not depend on us. That change is in the hands of the sovereign God. And that because of that, in the lives of those who have professed Jesus Christ by faith and are the children of God, change is certain. And so you can take that and act upon it. For the Lord your God is in the business of change. Let's pray.